Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 73 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's Bible question, how does God use weakness, disease, and tribulation to glorify his name and spread the good news of Jesus in the midst of a pandemic? I want to give a shout out to Keith Heltsley and the guy in St. Louis that downloaded 83 episodes of the podcast today. Welcome aboard to you, my friend. Keith left a comment on our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, and I'm going to read a little bit of the comment because it's great. And I also want to invite you to leave a comment or a question. If you've got a Bible question you want us to cover, you can leave a comment for me on BibleReadingPodcast.com. I want to invite invite you to review the show on iTunes or Apple Podcasts and also to share it with your friends on social media. Here's what Keith said. This is based on a conversation we had a couple of days ago about Bible translations. He says, my own preference in Bible translations are the ESV and CSB, the English Standard Version and the Christian Standard Bible. I won't claim to be fluent in Greek or Hebrew, but have studied both enough to know these two translations are both faithful to word order, but flexible enough to make sense to the English reader. I like the use of Yahweh for the reason that uppercase letters to designate the formal name of God are are lost on me. As a blind person who relies on reading through listening to the scripture being read, capital L-O-R-D is pronounced the same as capital L, lowercase O-R-D, or even lowercase L-O-R-D. It's nice to use something different without the reader needing to stop and clarify every time or to pause my text-to-speech software to set it to read by character, assuming there may be a need to stop and notice a difference, and it can be difficult to pick up on subtle differences in context to know whether I need to check. KJV, ESV, CSB, NASB, and its update are all excellent. They're all good, but since the grammar and certain words used in 1611 have drifted, the KJV is becoming cumbersome to understand. Literal meanings of words have drifted to the point that a modern reader has to continually filter what did this mean to the original audience? What did these words mean to English readers in 1611? What do the words mean to modern English understanding today? If nothing else, and the modern reader has no tools or knowledge of original languages, comparing multiple versions side Side by side gives a more rich understanding of the underlying original language and a deeper meaning that translators can't achieve with a single word-for-word translation. The more versions to cross-reference in parallel, the better. That is a great comment, Keith. I appreciate your discussion of Bible translations. You're absolutely right. The more Bible translations you have to cross-reference to understand what's going on, the better. You can check out Keith, who has been in podcasting forever and ever, at his website, retro-otr.com. That's retro-otr.com. So happy Friday, everybody. We are obviously still in crisis mode around the world, battling an unseen and terrifying foe, the coronavirus. I'm broadcasting to you live from one of the epicenters here in Salinas, California, which is just outside of San Francisco and San Jose. No cases in our county yet, or I should say no positive tests in our county yet. I believe everybody's having the same trouble. We barely have enough tests to go around, but there are lots of cases nearby. I believe, and I'm no epidemiologist, 
that this will be a worldwide fiery trial that before it's all it's all said and done it will leave virtually no community untouched if that prediction is accurate then that will mean that the church, the body of Christ, will go through extensive suffering and weakness over the coming weeks. And many of us, as we go through that, we're going to ask the question, why, as loudly as we possibly can to God? And I don't think that this will surprise you, but even though I'm a pastor, and even though I'm the host of a daily Bible reading podcast, for whatever reason, I'm not on the list of those who get explanations from heaven as to why things are happening the way they are. Go figure. Why are we facing this pandemic? I know as much about the answer to that question, or even less, than Job knew at the beginning of his fiery trial in Job chapter 1. That said, we do have the Word of God to inform us and to encourage us. Well, a brief pause here. I don't know if you heard that sound. But I have a printer in my office where I record this podcast. Said printer has been asleep for literally about a year. I've literally not printed a thing from the printer for a year. And it has a deep sleep mode, and that's what it's been in. It hasn't moved or made a noise in a year. And right after I said that part about not getting an explanation from heaven, it fired up like it was about to print something. Now, that's really weird. Unfortunately, it had no paper in it. So, um, yeah, I'm a little creeped out by that. But as I was saying, we do have the Word of God to inform us and encourage us. So let's turn there. And we read in 1 Peter 4, 12, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah so that you may also rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. One of the major things that we Christians need to learn from the word of God is that fiery trials and ordeals will come. We're not supposed to be surprised by them. I usually am surprised by these trials, but the word says don't be surprised. They are part and parcel of the Christian life. They're at the center. They're what were to expect. If somebody has told you that following Christ will protect you from trials, then I'm afraid somebody has lied to you. Consider 1 Thessalonians 3, for instance. Paul is writing to a church that is going through and gone through severe persecution, and he begins his encouragement to them with these words. He says, in verse 2, 1, Timoth- uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 2, We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith, so that no one will be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. In other words, we're going to have afflictions. Verse 4 says, In fact, when we were with you, we told you in advance that we were going to experience affliction. And as you know, it happened. So, trials, afflictions, troubles, whatever you want to call them, pandemics, they're coming. Well, one of them's here right now. As Jesus promised us, in this world, we will have tribulation. But take heart, he has overcome the world, says John 16.33. Now, our focus passage of the day is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm just going to be honest with you, I have a love-hate relationship with 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I love the truths found in there. 
And honestly, they're amongst the deepest and most profound truths in the entire Bible. When all of the American and Western culture and way says to seek to be strong in wealth, health, security, and popularity, the Bible, especially in the letters to the Corinthians, calls Christians to the power of weakness. And I don't like that word weakness any better than you do, but... The power of divine weakness is one of those paradoxes that makes more divine sense or God sense than it makes rational human sense. I looked in my notes the last time I actually preached on 2 Corinthians 12 uh, at the church I pastor, which is Valley Baptist Church in Salinas, California. Come visit us sometimes. Be sure you wash your hands. Um The last time I preached on that passage was November the 12th of 2018. When I preached, I had been sick for about, oh, six or seven weeks on this passage. First, it started with a month of bronchitis, maybe even five or six weeks of bronchitis. It got a little better, just a little bit, just enough for me to develop a severely painful infected tooth that had to be removed a few days after that. I, of course, came down with influenza A, which invited its friend bilateral pneumonia to come over and hang out for the next couple of weeks. I preached the following Sunday after diagnosed with pneumonia. I came in the back door and left the back door, didn't talk to anybody. But I preached on this passage, the power of weakness in about as weak a state as possible. Now, I love that my church doesn't depend on my strength to shepherd them and to save them from their sins. I love them very much, but honestly, I don't have the power to save them. I don't have the power to spiritually protect them. I'd love to, but I don't have that power. I love that my family, my wife and seven kids, they don't depend on me to save and protect them. I try my best. I really do. I have been pounding the ball on hand washing for my family to the point where they're rolling their eyes at me constantly, but I can't protect them. I just can't. I am in and of myself insufficient to save anybody at my church and anybody in my family. I want to be a hero. I want to be the hero, but I'm just not. I'm just human. I'm far too weak, and if we're being honest, so are you. Ironically, That is where the power of God rests on us, when we realize that we are weak vessels not containing the kind of power, or not containing in and of ourselves the kind of power we need to do the works of the kingdom. I'll never forget, oh, it's been about seven years ago now, I was uh, pastoring a church back in Alabama. I was at my wit's end. My family had been sick for what seemed like months on end. Turns out we had a terrible mold infestation in our house. To top it all off, some of my youngest had whooping cough. And yes, they were vaccinated. And yes, they caught whooping cough anyway. And I got to tell you, I've never faced an illness like whooping cough. It had us in and out of the hospital and the doctor's office for literal months. It was a nightmare to go through. And it was so difficult seeing my kids suffer through that. My hair literally started falling out. And one night after church, I was taking some garbage down to the dumpster and I was listening to the Bible on, uh, on my, um, auto. I guess I was listening to the Bible on my audible.com, uh, through my smartphone. And 
the reader was reading Second Corinthians 12. And when it got to the part where Paul said, I am content with weaknesses, I literally shook my fist at heaven and told God how sick I was of constant weakness and how sick I was of the way he kept taking me through this place of trial where I couldn't barely stand under it. I, in fact, I, I don't even, I may have even swore and, and cursed the abominable weaknesses that were in my life. And I kid you not, I really did shake my fist at heaven. I was so upset. And it was in that moment that the Spirit came over me as I was listening to the Word of God and brought a comfort to my soul that I had not had in a long time. So what I want to do today is I want to read to you this passage as you and I go through this fiery trial. This is Second Corinthians 12, verse 1. Paul says, boasting is necessary. It's not profitable, but I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a human being is not allowed to speak. I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except all of my weaknesses." For if I want to boast, I wouldn't be a fool because I would be telling the truth, but I will spare you so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, especially because of those extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. And hear this, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I've been a fool. You've forced it on me. You ought to have commended me since I am not in any way inferior to those super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of an apostle were performed with unfailing endurance among you, including signs and wonders and miracles. So in what way are you worse off than the other churches, except that I personally didn't burden you? Forgive me for this wrong. Look, I'm ready to come to you this third time. I will not burden you since I'm not seeking what is yours, but you. For children ought to save up for their parents, but children ought not save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for you. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Now granted, I did not burden you, yet sly as I am, I took you in by deceit. Did I take advantage of you by any of those I sent you? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus didn't take advantage of you, did he? Didn't he walk in the same spirit and in the same footsteps? Have you been thinking all along that we were defending ourselves to you? No. In the sight of God, we are speaking in Christ, and everything, dear friends, is for building you up. 
for I fear that perhaps when I come, I will not find you to be what I want, and you may not find me to be what you want. Perhaps there will be quarreling or jealousy or angry outbursts or selfish ambitions or slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I fear that when I come, my God will again humiliate me in your presence, and I will grieve for many who sinned before and have not repented of the moral impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality they practiced. So I don't know if you've caught it, but the the center of that passage, verse 9 and 10, Paul is saying he had some sort of incredible revelatory experience of heaven, and God allowed a messenger of Satan to weaken him, attack him, or something, buffet him, so that he wouldn't become prideful. And you say, well, that's weird. It's actually pretty profound to think about the wisdom of God who knew that Paul being attacked physically by a messenger of Satan was safer than Paul walking in pride. That's pretty heavy stuff. And so Paul, like any of us, prayed that God would take away the attacks of Satan. And what did God say? God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. And Paul says, hey, therefore, I will boast gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. Now, that's true. That's real. When we are weak, he is strong. But I got to tell you, I'm not crazy about that. I would rather Christ's power be manifested in my strength so I could be powerful and not weak. But basically, it seems like we have a choice. Are we going to be mighty in human power? Are we going to be mighty in the power of Christ? So let's talk for a couple of minutes about a theology of powerful weakness. And let's look at some of these Corinthians passages. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 22, Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Interesting. God's weakness is more powerful than all that we have to offer. Or how about 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2? When I came to you, brothers, announcing the testimony of God to you, I didn't come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I didn't think it was a good idea to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a powerful demonstration by the Spirit. So that your faith might not be based on man's wisdom, but on God's power. So this is Paul. He's a guy who came to the Corinthians in weakness and fear and trembling. He wasn't able to communicate with them for whatever reason with these powerful rhetorical words of an orator, but he spoke in the power of Christ. And that was enough. Later in 2 Corinthians 10, which we read a couple of days ago, Paul referenced this in in the criticism that he uh, receives. He said, For it is said his letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak and his public speaking is despicable. In other words, he didn't look very powerful. He didn't sound very powerful because he was physically, humanly weak. 
weak in presence, low in public speaking ability, not powerful. However, he said in 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. So if the kingdom of God is not about talking ability, and it's not about wealth or good looks or, or human power, what is it about? Well, it's about Christ's power residing in us. And, and when that happens, we can take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, catastrophes, persecutions. Can I add pandemics to that? Pressures because of Christ. For when we are weak, then we are really strong. A fundamental truth that we all need to grasp when we are talking about ministering to people and overcoming trials is that power does not come from us. When it does come from us, when we ourselves are powerful, it is far less powerful than when the power of God comes from us. And 2 Corinthians 4 kind of points us in that direction when Paul says, we're not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your slaves because of Jesus. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Now we have this treasure, this light, this power of Jesus in clay jars so that the extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. That's so important. It's not us that radiates. It's the power of Christ in us. We're just clay pots. So God's power is made more manifest and active in our weakness. God has given us his good news to share to a lost and dying world, and he's put his power in us to accomplish his will on earth. Church, we might be about to go through some of the darkest days in our lifetimes. If we do, many of us will be made far weaker than we want to be. You might think that that will dim our gospel light and our ability to minister to a frightened, panicky, sick, and dying world, but it will not. Our weakness is precisely the thing that God will use to manifest his power into the world. So lean into him, dear sisters and brothers. If he chooses to weaken you or weaken me, and he might, I pray for your comfort. But also remember to pray for power in the midst of that weakness. The light of Christ shines brightly in weak clay pots like ourselves, and this, this might just be our hour to brightly shine the light of Jesus in a way that the Western church has honestly been failing to do for decades. We've had the money, we've had the buildings, we've had the plans and the programs, but our light has dimmed, it seems, the more money and power and programs we have, the dimmer our light has been. Well, maybe that dynamic is about to reverse. I'll close with Daniel chapter 12. It speaks of the end time saints of God brightly shining the light of Christ as they are persecuted and struck down by the enemy. Let me be clear. I'm not implying that we are in the end times. We talked about that a few episodes ago. I don't know that we are. Definitely one pandemic is certainly not the sign of that. The church has faced dozens of them since Jesus ascended into heaven. But I am saying that we can and we must shine like the stars in the heavens as we go through this pandemic, remembering that there is no power in and of ourselves to shine except for the power of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, 
again speaking about the end times but applicable to this time, says, At that time, Michael the great prince who stands watch over your people will rise up. There will be a great time of distress such as never occurred since nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Those who have insight will shine like the bright like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever so in the end times there will be a people who have insight from the lord and even as the enemy is striking down they will shine like the stars in the heaven and they will lead many to righteousness in the midst of that great persecution so if we're facing something like that coming up So let your light shine, brothers and sisters, that the world may see Jesus and glorify him on the day of his return. Exodus chapter 24, verse 1. Then he said to Moses, Go up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of Israel's elders, and bow and worship at a distance. Moses alone is to approach the Lord, but the others are not to approach, and the people are not to go up with him. Moses came and told the people all the commands of the Lord and all of the ordinances. Then all the people responded with a single voice, We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early the next morning and set up an altar and twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel at the base of the mountain. Then he sent out young Israelite men, and they burned, offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and set it in basins. The other half of the blood he splattered on the altar. He then took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people. They responded, We will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. Moses took the blood, splattered it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of Israel's elders, and they saw the God of Israel. Beneath his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. God did not harm the Israelite nobles. They saw him, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay there so that I may give you the stone tablets with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua and went up the mountain of God. He told the elders, Wait here for us to return until we return to you. Aaron and Hur are here with you. Whoever has a dispute should go to them. When Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered it. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses from the cloud. The appearance of the Lord's glory to the Israelites was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain, and he remained on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Job 42, verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, Who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wondrous for me to know. You said, Listen now, and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I reject my words, and I am sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. 
After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now take seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job, and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. Then my servant Job will pray for you. I will surely accept his prayer and not deal with you as your folly deserves, for you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has." Then Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Neamathite went and did as the Lord had told him them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and doubled his previous possessions. All his brothers, sisters, and former acquaintances came to him and dined with him in his house. They sympathized with him and comforted him concerning all the adversity the Lord had brought on him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold earring. So the Lord blessed the last part of Job's life more than the first. He owned 14,000 sheep and goats, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named his first daughter Jemima, his second Keziah, and his third Karen Hapuch. No women as beautiful as Job's daughters could be found in all the land, and their father granted them an inheritance with their brothers. Job lived 140 years after this and saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. Then Job died old and full of days. John chapter 3 verse 1, there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Jesus replied. Truly I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. 
But anyone who loves lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. John also was baptizing in Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized, since John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then a dispute between John's disciples arose and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. John responded, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the broom's groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's word, since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Brothers and sisters, this is our message to a panicked world right now. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. We will not perish. What a beautiful, beautiful promise in John 3.16. Even though we die, we will not perish. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Let us go boldly proclaiming the message of John 3.16 and John 3.36 and every other passage in the Word. Let us go with that light on our lips. God bless you and God speed.